to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today, I have with me two people who are not unfamiliar to this podcast, so I don't think they need any more introduction other than if you want to go back and find their old podcast, please do. But with me today, I have Dr. Robbie Waddell and Dr. Chris Green, both of whom I'm excited to, proud to call friends slash past colleagues uh, and just good people. So welcome both Robbie and Chris. Good to be here. Hey, so I um little background on today's podcast. I was working on a chapter of a book um that Chris and Stephen had had invited me to write, and um which I'm still working to get to you on time with my already extension. Nice. Um and and I thought to myself, you know, it was the second in the series of books, and while I'm writing this chapter, I thought it would be great to talk about why this topic why are we kind of engaging with it why is it important and really why has it not been discussed so much uh beforehand at least not in kind of formal settings books even academic settings so today's topic we're really going to talk about the spirit and the spirit's engagement within kind of cultural spaces particularly the first book that chris and stephen did um was on film the spirit and film and this next upcoming one will be spirit and music but Chris, we'll start with you, man. Why this topic? Like what kind of gave you guys the conversation that the thought process say, hey, you know what's missing in our theological discourses, our pastoral, practical discourses? There's a ton of books on the film in Christ, right? And the film and here's the Christ story, the salvation story, and whatever film we want to say. Why mm. are we what are we asking when we talk when we're basically saying, why are we talking about the spirit in these cultural places? Yeah, I, I think some some of this, I, and Stephen would probably tell the story differently than than I'm about to tell it. But as as I remember, we were at a conference together. We both happened to give papers in a session talking about film and the spirit. And in the aftermath of that, and Robbie, you may have been a part of that initial discussion too. But it very quickly kind of turned to reflection on the fact that just what you observed, Aaron, it's it's not common to talk about the spirit in relation to film or, or literature. And I had mentioned in that paper, the one that kind of sparked the conversation with Stephen in the first place, that in Malik's tree of life, there's a character who is a spirit figure, not a Christ figure or a father figure, but, uh, but specifically a spirit figure. So as I recall it, and again, Stephen, almost certainly recalls it differently but i i think that was the the genesis of the conversation that very quickly involved robbie and jeff lamp and another a number of other people blaine charette who contributed to this volume the first volume or this second one aaron that you're writing for now and there will be others in the series i mean we we want to we we've already pitched a pretty lengthy series covering everything from of course, story and song and film, but also architecture, like right, right across the, art, the arts. But I, I think 
there are several reasons why it's not that common. And I think the primary reasons are theological. It's not easy to write well about the spirit. You know, there, it, there's a, people often say that there's a, a kind of gap in Christian theological tradition, and that's not quite right. I mean, I think mm. Christians have always written about the Holy Spirit, but when focus turns to the spirit as spirit, not the spirit in relation to, you know, the, the work of Christ in ministry or the creation of the world. Right. Which is, which is where it's most common to talk about the Spirit. The Spirit as the empowering agency of Jesus' mission, or the Spirit as the creator spirit, that's, that's very common. Like, you can't find a page in Christian theological tradition that isn't talking about the Spirit in those ways. But what about the Spirit as Spirit? Right? So if we, if we turn to look, so to speak, for the face of the Spirit, what do we see? And right. that, I think, they're... they're that has not been done very, very, at least not, not been done accessibly, you know, what, what, in ways that have reached discipleship and catechesis. It's not common language for yeah. across the tradition. And so when Christians start to think about the connection between their faith and the arts, Christology and soteriology are the easiest ways to get at the the connecting points and pneumatology is the hardest i think so if i could follow up on that chris that seems to be more of a pragmatic reason than it is a theological one right it's yeah. difficult and so therefore it's not done yeah but theologically um maybe it's not done because the spirit is so deferential deferential yeah. right if the spirit is pointing to christ then we try to look at the spirit what we end up with is an arrow towards Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that the spirit becomes, I don't know, hidden or um, not secondary in a priority sense, but deferential. Deferential, yeah. And that's essentially what I was arguing about the guide in Malik's Tree of Life. You never see her face. So you, you can see that it's a woman, it's a guiding figure, but what you see is the hand that's gesturing. So just to your point. So yes, I think it's difficult, but perhaps that difficulty is rooted in, in the ontology of the spirit, like who, who the spirit is to, yeah. to that definitionality. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Mark and I, in our chapter that we're working on, talk a lot about the humbleness of the spirit, the spirit's humility to not need to be pointed out or discussed or, or seen as the, the prime place of discussion, but that all the more says we should to some degree figure out what this means. And, and to, to both your point, I think my question maybe just primarily for listeners is um, to ask the question, what are we finding? Like it's hard to your, to both your point. It's, it's hard theologically. It's hard pragmatically what kind of things do we kind of like, what are the benefits I, I would say for us theologically to start asking these questions more, whether it's the spirit of music and film and architect, whatever it is, what benefits do we find by asking these questions? Well, if we use the metaphor of wind, right. Um, you don't see the wind. You don't know where it comes. You don't know where it goes, 
but you do know it, right? It is it is knowable and its effects are knowable. Um, I I use this um, quote from Killian McDonald's The Other Hand of God, um, where Killian says, the Holy Spirit cannot be objectified and viewed from a distance because, though distinct, the Spirit is not separable from the faith process by which an attempt to define who the Spirit is. Mm. And so since it's it's like if, you, you know, earlier work that I had done was on the pneumatology and the apocalypse, but it's difficult at times to differentiate between the Spirit and Christ because the Spirit is the horns of Christ or the horns of the lamb and the eyes of the lamb. Hmm. So if the spirit are the eyes of the lamb and the spirit are the horns of the lamb, then trying to talk about the spirit in, uh, in a way that's separate or um, that from Christ becomes a bit, you know, problematic. And so the, the, again, to quote Chris from earlier, the, the popular topics might be um, creation and the work of the spirit in Christ. The others might be, um, the spirit of prophecy or the spirit of justice or spirit of peacemaking. And so we see the spirit as um, not not so much just in terms of essence, but in terms of role, so that the work of the spirit is identifiable. And we believe that the work of the spirit is is not separate from, but integrated with the person of the spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't, yeah, the, the what the spirit does and who the spirit is are, are one. Absolutely. I think that that's essential pun intended. Like we have to get that. We have to get that right. What in it's interesting in both of us in this, this book wrote about Malik films. And I talk specifically about time and relation to the spirit and the way in which time factors in cinema. And and Robbie, you talked about the the later film that it's named. I just it, I just a hidden life, hidden life, which talking about Franz Jagerstadter and the the saint right that is formed kind of in in resistance to Nazism and try, his refusal to participate in in the violence that is required of him, and 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 of course also. The little book that he writes that you talk about is should be basic reading for for all of us as Christians. I I think what we get in both of those cases in very different ways, right? I mean, I'm writing primarily about the ways in which in films like Tree of Life, like Malik is using cinematic time, the experience of time we have in watching it to to affect us. It's one of the ways in which we're affected by the film, but in it's less about his cinematic techniques in that movie and more about the changelessness of this man. Right. So I, I, I just think it's an interesting detail that I wrote mostly about the ways in which the spirit works to bring about change. In fact, the title of my chapter is the move of the spirit and how that mm -hmm. connects to the, the movements of time and the way that film can use our experience of time to affect us, to change us. The, this, I'm deeply influenced here by Tarkovsky's observation, another filmmaker, that if you hold a shot, he says, and this is 
this is kind of the, the heart of his vision of what makes film film is if you hold a shot longer than people expect, they experience boredom. But if you keep holding it past the boredom and they stay with you, you open out on transcendence. Right? So you, you have, and what he's, what he's pointing to there is what he calls sculpting in time. That essentially cinema's medium is time, not the image, but the relationship of the image to time hmm. and to the movements of time, how quickly it happens and so on. And of course that has everything to do with editing and the, the length the film takes, the length the shot takes, all, all of that. But Robbie, you were writing about the changelessness of this man in the face of all of these other pressures. And this, I think, is a, is a point that needs to be made pneumatologically. The spirit is associated both with both, both the possibility of change, the, the possibility of transformation and so on, but also why it is that we might not change under certain pressures, like being able to to hold hold form to to remain steadfast to be immovable always abounding in the work of the lord in the language of king james both being the work of the spirit and i, I think it's this is one of the reasons we engage in this kind of work right because then you you're not only getting insight into the art these different films you're also learning theologically oh yes this is true like both of these are true of the spirit the spirit is the one who makes change possible and the one who makes a certain kind of resoluteness, changelessness possible. Yeah, I would say that an, A Hidden Life is a very straightforward telling of a story, which is a bit unlike Malik. I mean, probably not since his days of heaven did he have a plot line that yeah. you could actually follow yep. um, in a film in the way that you have with A Hidden Life. It does have, though, um, his typical cinematic style, right? There's, there's the cinematography is quite breathtaking. There's a lot of silence in the film. Mm -hmm. um, there's, yeah, a lot, lot of voiceovers, the montage, um, the way in which he uses it kind of coupled with voiceovers kind of really brings you into like a meditative experience that has a lot of the same, um, the viewer's experience is somewhat similar there say with the tree of life and how you're experiencing the time. Um, but as to the both that that change is possible and, and how you might not change, there's a sermon uh, in the film delivered by Bishop and, and, and Franz and uh, Francisca uh, Fanny, his, his wife have gone to see the Bishop and you're seeing them very uncomfortably kind of sit in a church service as you hear the bishop's sermon. Mm -hmm. But then you're also seeing other things. Like you, you see them, they're no longer in the sanctuary. They're now kind of outside, kind of walking through a portico on their way to the bishop's office. But you're still hearing the bishop's sermon. And the bishop's sermon is about uh, a hammer and an anvil. And, you know, who influences what? Yeah. Is it is Does the hammer influence the metal? that's being shaped or is it the anvil and how the anvil doesn't strike back. And I think that the way in which the bishop wants that to be understood by Franz and the rest of the congregation 
is yes. that ought not resist the the Germans. Mm -hmm. But the way that Hans understands it and presses forward and his kind of unchangeableness is that he just adopts a form not so much of non-resistance, but of non-violent resistance. Mm -hmm. And that we are all been changed, I think, in ways, those of us who, who, who've seen the film or know, know Franz's story, right? And Franz is the anvil um, yeah. there. Hmm. Yeah, this is this has been great. I think it's really it's really interesting because it is pushing beyond kind of those two things, right? Some kind of Christological implication. Where where is there a Christ figure in a film, and then we can just work on that Christ figure idea or salvation, you know, messianic figure or messiah kind of complex. It's interesting to me because I. I've read many of those spirit or many of those kind of like film books, right? Like Jesus yeah. goes to the movies or whatever those books were called. Right. And and it really just constantly looks at those things. And I'm not trying to downplay those works. I think they're, they're, they have their time and their place too, but to think about this spirit in relation to film and then to learn something of God through film, through new metallurgical considerations is something that I think a lot of people in the church might, be uncomfortable with when you say that out loud, but when they go to the movie and they have the experience, that truth can still hit them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I think in some ways, the truth hitting us is always a work of the spirit, right? That the actual, yeah. the actual being able to come aware of it and the coming aware of it are effects of, of the spirit. And th this is to Robbie's point about, the spirit being identified with wind, but it's also true of the spirit being identified with, with oil or with fire. Like these are elemental forces, right? That, that are attending other changes. They're bringing about effects in one way or another. And if we think of Christ as the effect that's brought about, Christ is the, we, we might even make the distinction in this way that Christ is what God's life makes of creatures. Hmm. The spirit is how God makes Christ of creatures, how it is that the divine becomes human and is human in a way that is true to itself and true to the divine. The spirit is making that possible. So, Classically, Christians would say God has no potentialities, no, no unrealized possibilities. But what we might say is the spirit is the, real, is the realizing power of all that is possible for God. But not we don't want to suggest by that, you know, there are things God hasn't realized yet, but there are things creation has not realized yet. Yeah. And the spirit is the realizing power of God. What makes it so that God can be God all in all, and what is made by the Spirit to the Father's delight is Christ, Jesus as the one who's all in all, us as members of his body, and so on. I think that's at least a way of thinking dogmatically about why it is that all things are one in their truthfulness, so that the same truth that I'm reading, you know, that famous line, all truth is God's truth. 
And I'm going to experience it in different ways. I, I need to experience it in different ways. But it's it's the one spirit who makes all truth experienceable for me, however I experience it, wherever I experience it. Yeah. There's uh, I did in the chapter, I made reference to Buber. Um, but then at, at a recent SBL meeting, I, I heard a paper on um, Malik's pneumatology kind of of a hidden life. And uh, I wish I could remember the scholar's name who presented it, but he, he raised a pretty fascinating um, question, which is a lot of people have acknowledged uh, the influence of Martin Heidegger on, on um, Malik. And oh. certainly there is some there, uh, I think without a doubt. And I even say, that all you know all of his films are in a way trying to answer this one question which is what is the meaning of life mm -hmm. but um what was suggested in that paper at the society of biblical literature is that in a hidden life perhaps what malik is up to is trying to offer an alternative to that uh interpretation of his work and create some distance between the two because also kind of infamously known is that Heidegger was quite cooperative with the Nazis. Yeah. Hmm. And when you're telling a story about a World War II non-combatant who's being killed by the Nazis because he won't fight with them, mm -hmm. that's obviously a story that's very much uh, kind of antithetical to the, um, the persuasion, right, of Heidegger. And so what we do get in Buber is we get this sense of the spirit that the spirit is neither I nor thou, right? But the spirit is in between mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. And that spirit that's in between I and you is the spirit of life, right? It is the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that perhaps what um, Malik is doing or what can be interpreted as to what Malik is up to in a hidden life, in a way is actually a critique of Heidegger and kind of leaning into a much more um, uh, inclusive, uh, sympathetic uh, to the Jewish plight, um, uh, understanding of of kind of who he is as a thinker, and that you can't answer the, that question of the ultimate meaning of life on your own. I mean, yeah. maybe Heidegger can, but right, but Buber can't, and mm -hmm. certainly Franz Jägerstadter can't. Right. 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 Because he's he's committed to his Catholic Church and to the Catechism and to the liturgy and to the saints and all of this kind of comes out, especially in his own writing. But even if you know a bit of that, that shines a light into his own experience, and it's an experience that is it's very existential. Like he had this dream of a train, uh, which plays plays a role in the film, but not as big a role as it plays in his own writing, that he really felt like. Um, God had spoken to him. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, so I, I mean, I think that's really interesting and, and a lot to ponder. I do think um, maybe I'll kind of summate some of this idea, right? In the sense that we're all kind of Pentecostals, not kind of, we are all Pentecostals um, in our spaces. And I think that because of being Pentecostal, we've all been well aware and and embodied the reality that the spirit is that which changes us. 
and moves us and crafts us and shapes us, right? And and we can say that, but seeing it on film, seeing it in a film or seeing it kind of displayed some places teaches us something that otherwise, while we can say that all day, hits us in a bit of a way that is beyond just having a conversation and saying, I can be changed by the spirit. But mm. seeing that play out in the in the art of film or seeing that kind of hearing that through music does something to us experientially that just being able to talk about how the spirit can change us is, I don't, I don't, so I'm not going to say limited, but just does not affect us in our full embodied self. Does that make sense? What I'm saying there? I, I think so. I Just let me respond. And then if I'm missing your point, you know, you can redirect me. I think we want to make a difference again between how something happens and what happens. Yeah. I think what you're describing is the what, and and you're insisting rightly that the what needs to be holistic. Like I have to be as a whole person brought into kind of whole person contact with the whole of the truth, the whole of who I am, the, the full complexity of my being has to open up to the whole mystery of life and, and, and the full reality of God. I think that's absolutely right. And that, that cannot happen only in the mode of discourse, right? It can't just be the exchange of ideas and words, certainly. Right. And this is, this is why like even Christian worship, we can't reduce it to singing and preaching and, and, and our own tradition, Pentecostal spirituality at its best. Although What's recognizable for many people, when you think about Pentecostal worship, a lot of people think about singing and preaching, a style of singing, a style of preaching. But I would argue that what's what's truly a mark of Pentecostal spirituality at its best, Pentecostal liturgy at its best, is that all of this stuff is brought together at once, hmm. which, which you're, you're, it's not simply discursive, right? It's not yeah. the exchange of ideas. There's a lot more happening than we can catch up to. So I think that that's not, it's not a matter of, yeah, some of this you'll get in church and others of it you'll get outside the church. I mean, the point is the, the liturgy itself needs to be holistic. It's not, and the moment we reduce our, our ministry or our worship to the discursive, like where we're exchanging words only as if, what binds us together is shared ideas in our heads. Like we've missed the point altogether, but I, I wouldn't want to make some difference between the church and say the theater in that way. It's not as if right. you know, the, the spirit, absolutely that, that boundary doesn't, you know, inhibit the spirit, the boundary between the church and the world, but we also shouldn't think that, well, some of this stuff will get done in the church and other parts of it. We can't. So I, I think we, again, we need that holism, in our liturgies, in our worship. I think the emphasis pneumatologically, though, is on the spirit as how that is possible. Yeah. How that is possible. Not what is brought about, but how it is brought about. Why is it that we can? And how is it that it actually does happen? And this is where I think the association of the spirit and surprise is so important. Mm -hmm. That we're, we're very often caught off guard by how the truth gets to us, not just what the truth is that surprises us, but how it comes to us. If you if you listen to people tell their stories about deep change, 
life, truly life altering change. It's always, I mean, it's almost always tied to deep suffering, but it is all, it's also often, if not always tied to surprise. Something comes that they didn't expect to come. Yeah. And I think theologically that, that surprise points to the ways in which the spirit is in the language of Jesus, the spirit blows where it wills, but you, you can't anticipate like when, when the spirit is going to do what the spirit is going to do or how. And I, I, I would think we want to stress both of those points. The what needs to be holistic, but what the peculiar glory of the spirit, if we could say, is that the how is endlessly open. Like there, there's no, yeah. There's no telling how the spirit might bring about what I need the spirit to bring about. That, no, that, I think I think that is what I'm trying to also note in so many ways is the how, particularly as it relates to the church, because the how is often the part that we struggle with the most in the sense that the how, using some of those passages, right? Like the spirit blows where it will. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> The how often pushes us to recognize that we cannot create boundaries or dictations to how that will happen. And so because it does surprise us in places outside of that, we can say it's going to surprise us outside of that. We might be even we might even be able willing to accept it will happen by watching films. It will happen by listening to music. It will. But to be able to say that and then to be able, I think it makes so many people in the church feel uncomfortable because then it goes, well, how, how do I know, right? How do I know that it is the spirit? How do I know this is what really is happening? Or how do I know what's true or not true? Especially when we start throwing that true word around, uh, it becomes, I think people just fall back on their sense of securities in relation to the church in relation to what God does or doesn't do by looking at Christ or by looking at the work of God that is, I don't want to say clear cut in the Bible because it's not clear cut, but at least they can kind of create those boundaries or those bastions by which I know God does this and I know God doesn't do this. But when it comes to the spirit, how the spirit works is not so clear in relation to this and not this. Does that make sense? Sort of, sort of. But I think that in some ways talking about it as not that clear is a reflection of we're looking in the wrong way. So I, I think I've become convinced and we can talk kind of how I came to this point. I mean, who I was reading and what my experiences were, but I've become convinced that like the heart of the issue is that in the churches that you and I, that, you know, three of us have known and, and still move in and out of, we have been stuck, forced into a literal-minded, problem-solving mode of living. Not just thinking, but of living. We live with literal-mindedness in problem-solving mode. And that everything we engage, we engage from that place. And that that place is essentially distorted and distorting. That if you live life with literal-mindedness and in problem-solving mode, everything will be distorted everything everything you think yeah. everything you say everything you hear everything you feel like because it's an inhuman posture it's not how human beings are made to live it's not how life is meant to be experienced and until we change that that mode of living 
it doesn't matter what we do, right? Because we will be answering questions that should never have been asked in the first place. Mm -hmm. So not only will our answers be wrong, the questions are wrong because our experience is wrong. It's distorted at base. And I think most of what, maybe that's too strong, but no, I don't, I don't think so. I think most of what passes for theological disagreement, pastoral difficulty, personal crises in evangelical circles is a direct result of trying to live in a way humans are not meant to live. You're not meant mm -hmm. to be living an unimaginative problem-solving life. And if you try to, then everything is going to be wrong. Everything is going to be wrong. Right. And that's why we, to be filled with the spirit then would be to have my how changed, how I'm living would alter, right? Not just what I'm doing and what I'm not doing, but how I'm going about it. And that has its own clarity. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that the spirit's ways aren't clear. It's that they aren't clear to people who are in problem solving mode because the spirit is not a problem solving. Yeah. God. <laughs> it's not yeah. who the spirit is. So of course it looks like you're not giving what you're asking. The spirit's not giving what you're asking for because the spirit can't give that. Robbie, what, what do you, I, I went on to. Yeah, I was just thinking that if, um, if evangelicals and Pentecostals were to write a catechism, their first question and answer might be, what is the chief end or purpose of a human being? And we'd say that the chief end and purpose of a human being is to figure out what's wrong with the world and to fix it. And to fix it, yeah. Yeah, not to love God and to enjoy God forever. Yes. Mm, and, yeah. and that idea that God is not a utility that can be used. And that surprisingness of the spirit, while I certainly agree that um, we, we come aware of these things often through our deepest suffering mm. a, as a corollary, not as a disagreement, but as a, as a corollary to that idea. I also believe that in our festivities and in our play, we are also surprised in ways that kind of rapture us kind of beyond in a Christian hope that motivates us to kind of live into a future. And, um, you know, one of the things that Malik does in A Hidden Life is he shows the Jägerstatters kind of living in this beautiful community. I mean, they're often working, but then they're also often playing, right? They're singing songs, they're having meals, the kids are frolicking, you know, in the on the hillside. And that, you know, theologians have done a, a fair amount, really, with the concept of play. Mm-hmm as as an idea of of a theological category um not not you know childishness but childlikeness that kind of gets into this kind of this the latitude and the freedom and the openness of the of the spirit and i i just think just to underscore that point about how this is why the way in which malik films these movies is inseparable from what the movies are when we watch them. You know, that in this, you know, many actors find this off-putting. I mean, uh, you you both will have heard stories about actors who never want to work with Malik again because there's so much of it that's unscripted, off-script, you know, hours and hours of just having actors play in the field and, and recording them do it, doing it. And so it's not just that he's showing on film the idea of play like he is putting actors and in, into positions in which they're having to play yeah 
right? And then translating that to, and, and again, that's, that's how the film is made, not just what it's about. And I, I do think that this, one of the symptoms of this disease I'm call, calling, you know, literal minded problem solving mode is that we, we always are reducing it to the what? What's the message? What does it mean? What is it about? Yeah. It, we Bonhoeffer in his Christology, his Christology lectures, he says that the Christological question is always who, never how. It's always who, never how. And what he means by that is you don't try to figure out which nature's doing what at what time. And you don't like the humanity's asleep in the boat, but the divinity calms the storm. Like, no, 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 no. It's who does it? Jesus does this. Because all yeah. that he does as the one he is, fully human, fully divine. But I think when you're thinking pneumatologically, right, when you're thinking about the spirit, the question is, how has this come about? And here's the wonder of it. That how, right, isn't, isn't limited by what's possible. The spirit, the, the unlimited possibilities there for God, the endless creativity of God, means that that how can take any shape it needs to take right yeah. for whatever whatever shape we need it to take and that will be terrifying to people who think that controlling the how is how you determine the what yeah <clears throat> right like think about yeah. even culture war stuff how much of culture war fighting is about trying to get control of what we think are the mechanisms to shape the hearts and minds of our children Right. And, and that betrays like a complete lack of trust in the spirit, but it also right. understands what it is to be human. Right. Like that's yeah. not actually, you know, I, I'm, there's endless examples. I mean, like literally endless examples of this, but there, there, there just aren't straight lines in our lives between what we become convinced of, what it turns out that we love. I mean, I, there, there was a, a, a family here at our house yesterday. We were talking with them. She, when, when her children were young, she was very insistent, right? That they, they not watch movies about violence, not play with, with guns and knives and so on, like distance herself and her kids from that. And when her son grew up, he went and joined the, the military, right? And he served in the Marines now. Like that, there's no straight line there though. You can't right. simply say, well, if she hadn't been so committed to that, then he wouldn't have done it. Right. We have no idea. There's, there's mystery there. Not only the mystery of whatever it is the spirit is doing, but also just the mystery of what it is to be human. And who knows yeah. why this kid was drawn toward military service and what, not only what is God doing in that, what is his own heart doing in that? We have no idea. He probably doesn't know, but certainly we can't stand outside of it and say, well, parenting in this way leads to this result. Yeah. You us who have kids, who are you know older than a few weeks know that that's just not how not how it works and and we that's true not only of parents and kids but of everything at every level of society right and i think so much of what's driving the the culture wars is that illusion that if i can figure out the right techniques i can dictate the outcomes and this conversation art at its best and theology at its best are both telling us that truth that no, you can't. Yeah. You can't because that's not what human beings are. You can't because that's not how sin works. And most of all, you can't because that's not how God works. Yeah. 
I think, no, I think, again, I think that's exactly what I was trying to get at with not the right words, right? This is why it does make the church uncomfortable, especially our evangelical and, and, um, Pentecostal churches, because we are saying by saying that we can look at film or art or architecture and be changed by an experience of the spirit where we aren't defining how that experience has come about or exactly how it works. We've created a sense of uncertainty with the way in which God works within the world that people push back against. Even Pentecostals who have historically been those who are open to the work of the spirit have at least maybe since I've been a part of the Pentecostal church my entire life, have been very clear, here are the rules of how the spirit does it or how the spirit doesn't do it because there is that problem-solving reality. There is that, I have to be able to logic what the spirit has done here in light of X, Y, and Z. And I think what I like about this, this book and what you guys have already written and what the series is doing is that we're pushing back against that kind of mindset by saying we don't have to describe the how, but we can come to these art, these art places, film and music and architect, whatever they are, and not have to describe the how, but get to experience the reality of the spirit through these things and and figure out how they've affected us, but not as a problem-solving metaphor, right? Not as a again, soteriological, salvific, here's how I'm saved metaphor but rather how then should we live, question mark, right? Yeah, it reminds me of two things. One, Mikado Fujimura's project of culture care, right? Where yeah. instead of engaging in a cultural war, um, which is a game that I think we're inevitable to lose, right? Because the, the way the rules are structured, um, thinking about kind of cultural care and that's taking place through art and through, and through beauty. And with... Uh, you know, with all of the work that's taken place in Christian higher education over the last 60 or 70 years about Christian worldview, if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that that project was bankrupt, Yes, right? That it yeah. was incapable of, of producing an outcome that we were actually pleased with, because we thought if we could define it correctly, it would, it would produce students, citizens, who kind of held those held those views and therefore had those behaviors. Um, and so the other thing I said there too, the other thing that it reminds me of um, besides uh, Fujimura's um, culture care is, is Jamie Smith's, you know, you are what you love and really right. his whole cultural liturgies project mm -hmm. um, that in the cultural liturgies project that he has, it's our habits, it's our practices that kind of shape the the kind of deepest parts of who we are that it's just not reducible to words and it's not reducible to ideas which kind of brings us back around to malik i mean malik uses silence so well um because these aren't um it's not as though ha had he used more dialogue somehow the film would be closer to what he was trying to say. Right. Um, yeah. The, the, yeah, the dialogue would, would not have helped. Um, I can't remember, you know, dialogue as opposed to monologue. 
one word. Dialogue is two word, two words. But I, I think it was Elred of Raveau and his book on spiritual friendship mm. that talked about the third word, which mm. is the word, the yeah. logos. Like if I'm one word and you're one word, there's in, in a dialogue, there's always this third word in a spiritual yeah. friendship that kind of brings us towards something. And, and both Elred and Cicero in his book on friendship says that what what makes good friends is not mutual affection with one another, but having affection for someone or something else, right? Mm -hmm. And and using that something in a more booberan idea, right, of another subject, and yeah. and that's what that's what pulls us together. And I think in a Malik film, that's that's why, in some ways, they're just uh, the experience of it, right? Like it, it, it takes some energy and it's also therapeutic, you know, to, to watch a Malik film um, because he's drawn you in by his form of storytelling uh, with a lot of pictures and a lot of silence and a lot of montage and a lot of voiceovers. And he's kind of evoked these um, emotions, um, affections, uh, in the viewer's experience. Well, I, th I, th I think, yeah, just to kind of trace that line a little differently, I think he's doing that and he's making it possible for us, but there's, it kind of, re it remains possible also for us to resist it. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is, th there are lots and lots of people who watch Malik films and hate them, right? Who, who come away from it, not with an experience of beauty, but with, with boredom or, or even annoyance in some way. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's as simple as, well, they're just not cultured enough or they're not holy enough. You know? Like in some cases that might be true, knowing some of the people that I've been in theaters with. When I, when I first saw Tree of Life, man, there was a group, a group of people, I don't know what they were thought movie they were going to, but it was definitely not a Terrence Malick film. And, it, but, part of the way in which I went into the film and the way in which I experienced it, even their kind of rowdiness and kind of defiance of the experience became part of the experience for me because mm -hmm. of the way in which I was. So like, I never think about that movie without remembering that first experience of it and, the, and those kids acting the fool in, in kind of in the face of it, defying it. And I, 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 don't, I just think it's so easy to underestimate kind of not only the infinite creativity of the spirit, which again, we're of course going to underestimate, but also just the, the kind of endless mystery that is human subjectivity, that is our own spiritedness. Mm. And that we, we haven't talked a lot about that in this conversation, but I think that human spiritedness, another way of saying what I'm saying about problem solving literal mindedness is that we are a dispirited people right now we don't relate well to ourselves if, if we take that kind of Kierkegaardian idea that the spirit is the self in relation to itself the, my spirit is how i am relating to myself hmm. be dispirited means that i'm at odds with myself that i, I don't have self-awareness i'm not living with self-control which is a fruit of the spirit and i i think that's kind of where we are we we are dispirited yeah. And you can't live humanly or divinely 
from that place. Like it takes spiritedness to be spiritual or to be human, right? To, to, to be what we're called to be. But because we have that capacity to, to be dispirited and in our dispiritedness, then even, even things that are beautiful and good, they don't land on us that way. Yeah. I, I think we have to, yeah, we, we have to acknowledge that too. The tragedy of what kind of lost, lost experiences, lost encounters because we're too, we're dispirited, distracted, numbed. I think, I think this whole conversation just kind of points to what can come from asking these kinds of questions of places and art, right? That otherwise wouldn't be explored. I mean, theologically, some of these kind of questions seem to have kind of quick answers or kind of uh, set ending points outside of pneumatological considerations. But I, I would say for people who listen to this podcast who are like, this all sounds great, but how do I start thinking in these ways, whether it's when I'm watching a film or or I'm just about out and about my day and I have experience, like how do we start thinking where we ask these pneumatological questions regarding how and uh, just from, from both of you, just because I know both of you as, as spiritual directors in, in your own times and places, like how do you help people kind of think about these kind of topics pneumatologically in their own life? Well, almost with like any good friendship, it's a matter of just being present. So, to, you know, to quote Brother Lawrence, practicing the presence of God. So, you know, the culture is pushing us in a different direction. But when he says, because, you know, he, he didn't have a very lofty role at the monastery. So he's like, you practice the presence of God when you peel the potatoes. Because that was his job in the kitchen. Right. Um, I mean, it's not it's not really different than what Thich Nhat Hanh says in his book on mindfulness. When you wash the dishes, wash the dishes. And finding ways to practice presence, um, I think, in, in, in Christianity, I would say contemplative prayer. Um, when that becomes a, a practice in your life, you it decenters the ego, uh, recenters God, and it gets it gets us in a more um, a disposition, right? That we can be present, um, and it's it's there that I think we might kind of have have that awareness. I think that's what kind of separates saints from heroes in in storylines. Hmm. Yeah, uh, amen to all that. I I definitely this is a hard question to answer because it's easy to fall into problem solving mode about the fact that we're right. in problem solving mode. Right. And this is why I love what Robbie said about when you're washing dishes, wash dishes. I, I think, I think the wisdom is what you have to do is get out of yourself first to get out of the problem solving mode. You have to care about other people and care for other people. And that is the position in which you can be surprised. Mm. what god is doing otherwise you won't you won't be surprised by it in the right way at least so I, I think it does come down to 
show up where you're supposed to show up, do what needs to be done, take care of the poorest and the weakest people at hand. God can and will do the rest, surprise you with it, but you have to be positioned for it. You have to have the disposition for it. And that dispositioning, I think, is shifting out of the mode of self-protection and self-regard into caring for others and letting yourself in that place just do that work all what matters here is that the dishes get washed not that i have a revelation right right what matters here is that you know i open the door for this this person that can't hold the door open to bring the wheelchair through whatever it might be right like those kinds of genuinely preferring the good of the neighbor especially the neighbor that's most in need that's what we have to do and then and then the surprise comes the surprise comes yeah. in, in whatever form it, it takes i i just and this is where and this is certainly not what jamie means but this is where like that cultural liturgies project if you're in problem solving mode what you hear in it is oh if i just engage in the right liturgies then i get the right outcomes right like if i just do all of the you know if i just follow the christian calendar instead of the secular calendar well fix that or yeah. you know and and obviously again no <laughs> like, like that's that's that is a failed project even when you win you lose right even when you're successful you've completely distorted what it what it means to be human and if you're washing the dishes in order to try to have an angelic visitation well gabriel's never going to show up right you're just going to get a projection of your of yeah your, you got to wash the dishes, right? Because the dishes need to be washed. And then who knows, Gabriel might show up, but there's a, you cannot, we, we just can never think that, you know, doing the work of a servant is the way to get a promotion, right? Or following a liturgy is a way to, oh, that's what's going to transform. Like, that's, that's just not how God works. That's not how human beings work. Like, the, that's not, not the way that reality functions. And I, I, I think this is, there are no techniques with God, Like there, nothing God works, but nothing works with God. Nothing works with God, not prayer, not Bible study, not fasting, not church attendance, not tithing. Nothing works with God works, but we do those things if we do them at all, because they need to be done for themselves, right? Not because they are means to some other end. And this, this is, you know, uh, turning into a rant but i think this is this is what many of us get caught on those caught in that trap of well i just need a better problem solving approach that will solve the problem we gotta yeah. get the game all together right life is not a problem to be solved and well i think that gets us back to boober right in terms of the i and down this the kind of treatment of god as as a means to an end or or things in relation to god as means to ends right um prayer the reading of the scripture the the following of the liturgy as i don't know growing up as a kid i've said this before but i was told i wasn't allowed to watch harry potter or read harry potter because it taught you magic and then i would go to church and i was taught magic right? Say these prayers, say this thing, do it this way, and you will get this thing. Like it's the output that comes when you do these things. Um, it was a, an odd projection I found later in life to kind of go, 
this is what I was told I shouldn't do. And yet this is what I was also being told I should do. Yeah, but um, that's right, Aaron. But think about this is the thing I've, I've come to appreciate or recognize about the kind of um, moralistic culture that we were raised in. It was always right that those things it was warning against were threats. It, it was, they were abs- when they told you, don't listen to Harry Potter or don't read it. They were 100% right that that was an alternative to what they were doing. Mm, yeah. They weren't wrong to fear it because they intuited at some level that is an alternative to the thing we're practicing. Now, what they're wrong about is that it has any bearing on what God is actually doing. And right. they're wrong about that part of it, but their, their instincts to fear it were right. Mm. Like, and, and one of the ways if we talk about one of, one of the things that shows up in kind of moralistic reactions against culture, against film, especially, but also other, you know, music and even fiction, moralistic cultures will warn against the, how dirty or um, kind of inappropriate, out of bounds, the, the topics, the scenes, you know, so nudity in film or sex in literature or, or cursing in, in music, like the ways in which moralistic circles re- react against those. I realize like part of, they're, again, I think they're wrong about what God's holiness is concerned with, but they are right to say that those exposures that the, the the willingness of of artists whether filmmakers or novelists or musicians or whatever else to explore that dimen- those dimensions of human life they are right that they cannot do that and it's why their prayers don't reflect that it hit me, mm-hmm. it hit me right that the same circles that would never let you know they, they they don't want you to watch r-rated movies because they have curse words in them the very things they don't want to see in film or hear in music or or read in, in literature are the things in their own life they would never it never bring up even in prayer. But they regard them as so kind of unspeakable that they don't come up even in prayer and therefore cannot be addressed. And this is why in those circles, when those kinds yeah. of things are taking place, they're hidden, they're covered, they're explained away, and you get you know cycles of abuse and cycles of manipulation for years and years and years without ever being exposed because those things can't be named right so i i I think recognizing what they're fearing is telling us something true about what their concerns are and being able to recognize oh yeah like that's telling it's telling that we're afraid of you know like i think Martin Scorsese's, you know, when he made The Last Temptation of Christ and the kind of cultural backlash there was to that, like that told us something about the way we actually related to the Gospels, the way we related to Jesus, the way we, what our Christianity was, that that is what we fear, tells us something about what we love. Yeah. And I do think it's important that we kind of recognize that about ourselves. I feel like... Anytime I get the chance to just chat with you two, it's, you know, there's those people in your life that you can just literally hit a record button and then just keep talking and it could go hours long and be great the entire time. And then you also have to realize that you have to respect everyone's time and you can't do that. But I I always with you two, I appreciate it. I think 
I, I want to talk more about that. I want to have more conversations there, but we've definitely gone our lot of time and I do want to be respectful for that. But um, the, the book, right? It's the spirit and the screen. Um, I think you've got a, you might have to say something in order for your name to pop up again with your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Spirit in the Screen, Pneumatological Reflections on Contemporary Cinema. Stephen Felix and I, Stephen Felix Yeager, and I edited it. This this came out, what, was it last year? And then the one we're working on now is The Spirit and the Song, which will be Pneumatological Reflections on Contemporary Music. And there'll be many great chapters and one garbage chapter in that book. So, um, I, I wanted just so you know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but you're not, you're not the last person. We're not, you're not the only one whose chapter is, is yet to be delivered. Well, has your chapter been delivered? It has been, believe it oh, or not. Oh gosh. Now I feel really bad. <laughs> that tells you a lot, doesn't it? I actually, I actually loved, um, Loved writing this chapter. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun. I talked about the the experience of singing in particular, and uh, I'll fly away, which it's actually related again to this the same thing we've been discussing all day. How, like in terms of its content, I'll fly away is pretty disastrous, right? I mean, like theologically, mm-hmm. terrible sound, and aesthetically, it's you you wouldn't think there's much to it. It's a simple song, and uh, I mean, musically, there's not much to it. And yet, there is something that happens when people are singing it, which is why that it becomes a staple, not only of like the Pentecostalism that we all grew up with, but of broader culture. I mean, Kanye has a version, right? Yeah. Nope. When when the Coen brothers do Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I'll Fly Away is on the soundtrack and had to be, right? And there are endless versions of it again in pop culture for a reason because something's happening there's something about that song that allows for the singing to transcend what the song itself is hmm. and I, I so that's kind of what i'm exploring in that chapter. it's a lot of fun to... i love it and i just rewatched oh brother where art thou the other day uh what a great movie absolutely absolutely um thank you both again uh, it's good seeing you both, and I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Yeah, let, let's let's do it. let's do it sooner than later. Yeah.